to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. This is Victoria Goldberg, Lisa Manning, and Tony Laudico met in Tokyo, Japan, where they were both working at the time. It was a serendipitous encounter of a Canadian and an American, and the beginning of their version of a modern fairy tale romance, in which they lived happily for 27 years in many countries around the globe and made thousands of memories with their extended families, friends, and two wonderful sons. But unlike many fairy tales that end when a couple dies on the same day after a long life together, Tony's and Lisa's fairy tale had a different ending. Lisa Manning Laudico died on August 6, 2022, after five years of living with metastatic breast cancer. She died quickly and unexpectedly within one week. Tony was suddenly faced, as it turns out, totally unprepared with the stunning reality of becoming a widower and the future without the love of his life, his partner and best friend. A year later, soon after the one-year anniversary of Lisa's passing, Tony got in touch with me and suggested that we meet and talk about Lisa's last days and how he was able to survive these past 12 months without her. You will hear the remarkable and at times heart-wrenching account of Tony's struggle to comprehend life without the partnership that had sustained and defined him for 30 years, practically his whole adult life. He will talk about the anguish of loss, a nightmare of death duties, the true meaning of grief, and the solace of friendship. Although not always easy listening, I found Tony's story to be uplifting and a testament to the power of love. I think you will feel the same way. So how do you want to start? Anything that in particular that you, just, you want to ask me? You just talk. If you're comfortable with that. Sure, of course. Then let's do it that way. And okay. I will ask you if I think of something that I want to ask you as a follow-up. I sure. Will. First I want to say this story is only mine. You know, grief is so personal. And my only purpose here today is if there's other men out there going through this and they need somebody to talk to that I can be available. Because one of the things I found when Lisa got sick was there wasn't really nobody to talk to. 
there's really no groups, there's really nothing official out there, so to speak. If anything, I can say just about the journey I went through with her, both when she got sick, the treatments, how she passed, which is a difficult thing to talk about and a difficult thing to hear for everybody else out there that's dealing with the disease. But there's points of view that I have about things I could have done differently. And it's taken me about a year to be ready to talk to you guys about what I went through with Lisa and the great stuff she did and how hard it was for me sometimes. Going through this, having to balance your needs against the needs of somebody that is going through a very difficult and life-ending part of their experience. And one of the best things I ever did, sounds silly, I asked my friend who lost his wife to cancer when Lisa was diagnosed. I sat down with him, and it was literally the week after she was diagnosed, and I said, if you could go back three years, which is how long she lived, what would you do differently? And he said something that was simple and profound for me. He said, I wish I was just nicer to her. And I went, what? <laughs> I was expecting so something like super so profound, like our journey together was beautiful. I said, what do you mean? And he said, we were married a long time and marriages go through ups and downs, right? And just because she was sick didn't mean that we didn't have trouble. Mm-hmm. And the disease and the diagnosis causes more pressures and troubles. And he said, sometimes I would just get snappy with her. Sometimes I would just be frustrated or scared and wouldn't know how to deal with it. For me, the most important thing during the five years when Lisa was ill was two things for me. One was to just be as nice to her as I could be. Just be nice. (laughs) Did you succeed? Not perfectly, of course not. <laughs> and you knew her. I mean, she wasn't shy about no, what I could do better. Not at all. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it focused me on trying to be the best version of myself for her, which is not easy to do during a stressful situation. And then for the kids, I felt my role really changed too, because Lisa was very focused on our kids being okay when she was gone. Mm. And we used to laugh with her all the time. We used to say to her, all right, your perfect death is you would die at noon, we would have a couple of drinks at five, and move on with our lives. We would laugh, and she'd be like, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I don't want you guys to suffer because of me. And she meant it. She meant it, on the one hand. On the other hand, she was very aware of the limited time she had left to be with our kids. And she wanted things to happen in a certain sequence. And mm-hmm. one of the things I learned about this disease is it doesn't care about any doesn't sequence. Care. It doesn't care about anything of that. So as a caregiver and a father, and I think after the fact, as I look back on it, this was the right decision, I backed off of that completely. Mm-hmm. And we used to not get in fights about it, but intense discussions about, she'd say to me, what do you want the kids to be after I'm gone? And I said, the only thing I can do is to let them know we're all in it together. Yeah. That we all loved you, we're all grieving together, and that I love them and I'm there for them. That's all I want. Which changes your view of how you deal with your kids. Because you go from being an active, okay, have you done your homework kind of thing when my kids are that age, to a, 
Homer, it doesn't matter. What matters is you're emotionally okay and you're going to be able to recover from this and get on with your life. I think that was really important for me to do that. All the planning stuff was important mm. to give me a sense of some scaffolding, but I found that it wasn't worth it in the end. I found myself completely adrift yeah. when she passed, and she passed quickly. She did. You know, it's interesting. Last June, we were celebrating my birthday mm -hmm. the whole month. As and one should. <laughs> as one should, yes. And at the end of the month, Lisa hosted a little birthday party for me on the roof of your apartment. It was wonderful. She was in good spirits. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend after this little party, and she said to me, Lisa was well aware of what was happening to her, and she was saying goodbye to us. And I don't know how you feel about it, because I'm not sure it's true. I don't think that's true. Let me tell you about her passing a little bit, because I think it's important. It's difficult to hear, but as a caregiver and her husband... We need to know. ...kind of what happened, right? So Lisa was not only a patient advocate, but she was a great advocate for herself. Yeah. And really was in touch with all the trial doctors and needing to, to work on all of that. So as you know, towards the end, and she was sick for five years... When she did pass, or when I was with her oncologist in the hospital, getting ahead of myself a little bit, he said, I'm really sorry this is happening. And I said, of course, so am I. But if you could have promised me five years ago that she would have had five years of good life with very little side effects, passed within a week, surrounded by her family, we would have taken it. That being said, towards the end, Lisa was getting sicker, and the trials, as they do, were not succeeding. And she was coming off a trial and she had a chance to get on another trial. And unfortunately, the trial that she was on, she was randomized to the placebo. Yes, I remember. Right? Broke her heart. It broke her heart. But there was another trial she was focused on down in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. And she was planning to go down there. Literally the week before, she was writing to friends of ours saying, let's get together for dinner. I'm coming down. It's going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. I looked at her, and she was getting tired. And I said to her... I'm really worried. And she said, I think I only have about a year and a half left. Yeah, that's exactly what I heard from yeah, her. Yeah, so she was saying that to me. She, she was consistently saying it to everyone. Yeah, yes. so she kind of knew what was happening, but yeah. as a person who was with her every day, I could see it was changing. And that was really hard because I didn't know what to do. Here's the expert who supposedly knew everything she knew about this disease, but because her liver was failing, her bilirubin was going way up. Yeah. Now I understand it's one of the signs of causing confusion and yes. a lot of issues, right? I didn't know that at the time. This is why I'm here. We should know this. We should know the signs as caregivers because yes. if you're a partner, all of a sudden saying, I'm feeling pretty good, and you know that's not true, <laughs> you have to know the signs. Yeah. Shame on me. I was focused on jaundice and ascites. That's how you pronounce it? Ascites. And Lisa was very slender. And she said to me, I don't have that because I'm not holding water. But what she did say to me was, I am constipated. I can't go to the bathroom. And she was very uncomfortable. And again, one of the things I didn't realize is that towards the end, your organs start to shut down. 
So I'm running to the store trying to get her you know, laxatives. And finally on Friday, before she was going down to, to Baltimore, I said to her, "Hun, I, I have to take you to the hospital. I'm frightened. I don't know what to do. So part of the thing for any partners out there is to, I think, as hard as it is, to understand what this looks like and to be able to react for your partner. I left it to Lisa to know what was going to happen to her because she was the expert. Shame on me. And we went to the, and again, I didn't know where to take her. I was panicking, like, where do we go? Where do we go? And I finally drove her down to MSK and they put her in the room in the morning and they took her numbers and they drew a liter and a half of liquid out of her abdomen. And the, the attending doctor said, we're just going to see what's going to happen here. But if this doesn't work, we're going to see if we can get the gastro guys to see if they can do something with the liver. To right? put a to, stand. To put a stand. Or to I remember the, the, right. she called me and told right. me. Right. Otherwise, we'll have to think about hospice. I was floored. I was completely shocked. So was Lisa. I went, excuse me? Think about hospice? We were with her main oncologist a week ago talking about trials. What What's happening here? Yeah. And we checked her into the hospital, and it was covid still covid You remember? Mm-hmm. We couldn't have a, a private room, and that was difficult for her. And I would be with her from kind of 9 to 7 at night or something. We could have one visitor a day. I remember um, that. The time in the hospital was super difficult, and not for the reasons you might think from a caregiver perspective. We check into the hospital, and the nurse comes in, and Lisa's in bed. We're literally just checked in from downstairs, and the nurse says, Hi, I'm nurse so-and-so. I'm just going to take a family history. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about dear sisters have cancer? And I looked at her, and I was like, She's been a patient here for five years. So what I learned was the hospital was completely disconnected from the treatment center. And one of the things I could have, I think, done better, and if you're a caretaker out there listening to this, understand the mechanics of how that works. If someone's getting checked in, maybe you could do the history beforehand. Maybe you can give them everything they need so your partner isn't bothered by all this stuff because she was super uncomfortable. And the doctors literally for three days kept saying to me, tomorrow we should know whether the gastrointestinal people can do something for her. We're not sure yet. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, just tell me. (laughs) If she's ready to go, we both want her to die with dignity and she won't let me tell anybody that she's this sick. So again, trying to balance her wishes with not my wishes, but all of our wishes for her. I couldn't do it because the hospital was saying one thing. Mm. Lisa was saying another, like, don't call anybody. Finally, it got so bad, I called four people, my two kids, I called you, and I called Lisa's sister, Mary. After three days, they said to me, she's going home today, we can't do anything. So again, I'm shocked. Oh my gosh, we're going home? I didn't even have hospice arranged. I know. I tried to arrange hospice. They had a glitch in my insurance, so they all of a sudden called me back and said, oh, sorry, we can't give you hospice because you don't have the insurance for it. 
thank you, bye, click. So I was immediately left alone in the hospital with my wife who I had to get home with no hospice. Shame on me for not arranging all of that beforehand. Lisa and I had literally said the week before she died, all right, let's spend next week reviewing right. the funeral plans and the hospice and who you want. She had somebody who was going to come visit and the whole thing, and that all fell apart. So, again, my point is here, if you're listening to this, do that now. <laughs> it's something you always want to put off. Make the hospice arrangements. Make sure you know who you're going to have it, even if it's a year from now or whatever's going to happen. Understand the check-in procedure in the hospital, what's going to happen when the transition happens. I was thinking I was really good at this for five years, and then when everything happened so fast, and the doctors in the hospital were the most wonderful people. All of the oncologists that I've ever met, they're all heroes in my book. They do everything they can, but doctors are not going to tell you your wife's ready to go. They just wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't give me a date. They wouldn't give me a time. When I got Lisa home that Thursday and the hospice nurse came in, I asked her how much longer and she goes, probably tomorrow. I remember in the hospital, the doctor said a couple of weeks. And when the hospice told you one day, I thought she knew what she was talking about. She knows what she's talking about, right? They see this all the time. Yeah. If I had a relationship with a hospice nurse, maybe I could have called them and said, hey, here's what I'm hearing. What do you know? How do you know it? What's happening here? Yeah. I was caught completely off guard. And so was Lisa. She passed literally within a week. Yeah. It was a blessing. We got her home on a Thursday. Saturday, I was planning to come to see her. Yeah. And you called me in the morning and you said, don't bother. It was so bad that her sister made it down. Yeah, I'm glad she did. And then by the time people started showing up at the house on Saturday, she had already passed. Yeah. And that's one of the things I feel conflicted about, right? Should I have not listened to her and said, I'm sorry, I'm calling everybody to come here and visit you or be ready. But it was her life and her decision. She was so private. Even though she was a people's person, she was... Very private. She was. So I had to respect those wishes. Yeah, right? and you, I did, can't... you did absolutely the right thing. I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but it was always important to her to look her best. Of course. <laughs> that was the thing. Right. Even at the end, yeah. when you don't look your best, I actually think this is the case where you did the right thing by listening to her. She would always say I did the right thing by listening to her throughout her 30-year marriage. So. <laughs> That's what I tended to do, is listen to her. What I wish I would have done differently would have done the planning much sooner, no matter how difficult it is. And the planning has to include what the funeral is going to look like, what funeral home you want. So you think it is important? Absolutely. Okay. Because then part of what I've learned through all of this and part of what Lisa taught me and all of you guys taught me was that the only way I was going to survive this in any way, shape, or form and be healthy about it was to have lots of people around me. And my psychiatrist said when she first got diagnosed, I said, I feel like I'm carrying a big rock all by myself. Yeah. And he said, well, why, you, why is it so big? Why, why don't you make it small? <laughs> You know, it's just your imagination. I go, go, no, it's a big rock. He goes, yeah, it is, but if you broke it up, 
and gave it to a lot of different people to help you carry it, life would be better. And it was. But part of not doing the planning early was not being able to get enough people in our lives as part of the process. So even though I knew sort of what she wanted for her funeral and her service, the hospice said I had to pick a funeral home. I went, um, okay. <laughs> Tom Scalera. We picked the same funeral home as him because he lived down the street, but I had no idea what Lisa wanted. I had to write an obituary. I had to write, obviously, her eulogy. And when you're grieving, yeah. and you have to do that, and oh, by the way, you're still trying to work and you're still trying to take care of your kids and you're still trying to take care of yourself. Having all of that done beforehand, I think would have allowed me to just be with people. Yeah. And take their love in and support in rather than be like, I have to write the eulogy, I have to go see the, the reverend, I have to go do this, I have to go do that. And tasks are good, but if those tasks are done beforehand... It makes things easier. And as we know about this disease, unfortunately, this is probably going to happen. It's going to happen to all of us, right? But as a partner, um, again, I wished I had done this earlier with her. The other thing I didn't do that I really regret is I didn't listen to a lot of the episodes that she did, that she produced. I worked with her on producing them in the background. We picked the music together, which was great. The music, music, yeah. the music that we use now, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, We did the intro together. I always said to her, my life would be so much better if you used your radio voice all the time. You know? Oh, and what a voice. <laughs> yeah, it was good, right? Um, I didn't really listen to the episodes. Again, it was me. She dedicated her life almost to patient advocacy. Mm-hmm. Her job became her disease yeah. in many senses. She wasn't defined by it, but she wanted to conquer it. Yeah. I, on the other hand, didn't want to hear about it all the time. So it was very difficult um, for me to get as close to her as possible in terms of the disease. I was just afraid. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had changed that. And there's a specific reason for it. Uh, she wrote a poem. Oh, my God. You're probably talking about that poem. Yeah, that I did not read because I was too scared to read it until she passed. And the poem talked about her isolation and loneliness. And I was standing next to her when this was at Pam's funeral. Yes. And she never said that to me, but I was so afraid to like face her death with her that intimately somehow that I failed to notice how frightened she was in some deep sense. That I think is something I wish I had done differently. Really been able to be in there with her in the trenches. We just talked about where she was getting treated. And part of the difficulty is as a caregiver, and it's certainly somebody with the disease that you guys know better than I, is the scheduling is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> like Lisa would go for chemo in the morning and I would go with her. And yeah. then she'd need a transfusion. And then yeah. they didn't have her scheduled. So a three-hour thing would take seven oh, hours or eight day. hours. And if you're working and you want to be with your partner at all times as you're going through this, it becomes very difficult because this could be a long haul if you're lucky. So I think I did not spend enough time with my work, who was wonderful with me throughout this, by the way, 
saying, look, I'll work on Saturdays instead, but every Tuesday I'm just going to spend with my wife. That's it. I'm just going to dedicate that day to her. I'm going to take her to chemo. I'm going to be with her. I'm going to sit there. At least I always poo-poo that. No, no, no. I'm going to be doing this every week. I'll get Victoria to do it one day or other friends to do it other days. And, and eventually it got to be so like routine for her almost that she would just do it by herself. I feel like I should have been there more for her for that. So there, again, this was the balance for me of being so intimate with her fear and her passing that I put a bit of a wall up, which I think is natural. But again, if anybody out there is listening to this, you're going to have to deal with this at some point. I would recommend you get as close as possible to what they're going through. Let me tell you this poem. I I only heard it for the first time. Mm. I guess at the service. Or Allison had posted it earlier. It tears your heart out, doesn't it? It broke my heart. It broke my heart, too. I've always known that she was brilliant. I've always known she was talented. I've never realized how deep a thinker she was, Mm -hmm. actually. With her looks, sometimes people tend to underestimate. Mm. And it was devastating to hear how lonely she was. And even with us, with me, with people who are going through the same, she did not open up. Not to a degree that I wish she had. And she didn't to any of us. But I'm just saying that even in my case, I was absolutely shocked. Yeah. Yeah. We were all with her that day. Yeah, and we should read We were all there. Yes, they were all there. It was like, oh my goodness. And we were seeing the same thing she was seeing, but through completely different eyes. And these were people who are living with this disease. And I'm just wondering again if my fear stopped me from looking too close. And we shared so much, and we were together... She died on August 6th, and August 12th would have been my 27th wedding anniversary. Is that right? And we were together for over 30 years. And we're very close and shared so much. Yet that part of her wasn't available to any of us. No. It's just funny. And then there was another person up in Connecticut, I don't think you knew, who had the disease. She passed fairly quickly. Very quickly. And Lisa said, I'm going to go to the funeral. You don't have to go. And I said, I've been to so many funerals (laughs) that I don't think I could face this one. And I didn't go. She said, that's fine. And she came back. She was so mad at me. (laughs) I said, why are you mad at me? What did I do? Because I really wanted you to go to this one. You have to tell me. And part of going through this with your spouse is, number one, understanding your own feelings, because you don't a lot of the times. But just being brutally honest. I don't care if you don't want to go. I need you there kind of thing, right? I wish she would have done that a little bit more. And she did that with me a lot. Again, as I think back, I wish I was just in it with her more. In it with the planning. In it with the fear. In it with the, the how we could do this together. Uh, I felt like I was protecting myself. And as a caretaker, you're going to go through this. you got to yeah. protect yourself. It's hard. It's difficult. It's emotional. It's all this stuff. Sometimes you pull back on it, but I think I would have been stronger after she passed if I had done more. If you had faced it. Yeah, because I don't blame, but I regret. So I regret not going to every chemo appointment with her, even though that was part of her identity and she wanted to be strong and independent. 
I regret not telling my work, like, hey, I'm just taking these days off. You need to work with me on this. It was more like haphazard kind of thing. And I regret not listening to every episode and, and being with it with her because it was her work. But when her work became the disease, it was so difficult, which is why I wanted to come on today that you know, I've never been on. It's been a year since her passing, and it's been super difficult, as one would expect. You told me you choke up when you, when you hear her voice on the intro. Every time. Every time, right? Every time, without fail. Yeah. I think it's really good in the planning, only if it allows you to make the connections you need to make and keep them. And that's something Lisa and I both did poorly because we always thought we had time. And when she died, it was so fast. Look, people go into hospice for months sometimes. And, you know, Lisa was in hospice for two days. And am I grateful she didn't suffer? Absolutely. But the other thing I really didn't expect was when she was in hospice, I would be the one giving her lorazepam and morphine. But the hospice nurse said, okay, every three hours you're going to start giving this to her. Okay, so they weren't there. So they weren't there. And I was like, well, where are you going? <laughs> what's, what's happening here? Yeah. So that was a surprise to me. And I sat the boys down, and I'll tell you this. I said, okay, guys, I'm about to give your mother lorazepam and morphine, and once I start that, she's not coming back. And she was pretty much unconscious at this point, but I said, if you have any last words to say to her, please say them now. And they did. I'm so proud of them for that. And then I, I did this for three hours, on the three hours, until she died. And part of me never expected to feel like I killed her. I never expected that as a caregiver. Again, so if you're listening to this, understand what your responsibilities are going to be with your partner of 30 years or 50 years or 10 years, what you're going to have to do and how you're going to have to do it. That's very difficult. And I've sat up with her all night before she passed and she had a gone breathing. I didn't know what the dying process was. Yeah, of course not. I wish I had. I think it would have been easier to deal with. I was alone with my sister-in-law in the house and my two kids, that was it. And I was just alone in the room with her that night. And I just talked to her all night. And then I needed to get some sleep and my sister-in-law came to be with her and Lisa died when I was downstairs making a cup of coffee. And I wasn't with her at the end. And Mary was though, right? Mary was though, and the two kids were. We just, again, it just, goes on and on and then stop. It wasn't that cinematic moment no, when she wakes up and says, very, very shallow, I love you. And Her breath was very shallow and she just died very peacefully. She yeah. just stopped breathing and she was gone. Yeah. But again, I wasn't there for that. And a lot of people have told me, and I think this is true, that people wait until people are in the room to pass a lot of times. Really? Yeah. But again, I don't know if that's just to make people feel better. But there's a lot of hard truths here that I just wish I was able to face a little bit sooner than I did. I wasn't as brave as Lisa was, I don't think. And I don't know why. 
she sure showed me the way, but she showed the way in terms of clinical health and mental health and for people with the disease, but not for the people who are following them. And that's the thing that I missed throughout the whole thing. So again, if there's any partners or spouses or men, especially out there, that want to contact me and just talk about what's going on, I'm happy to do it. And again, my journey is not anybody else's journey. Yeah. It's, it's not better or worse. Or, it's just different, and it's my journey. time to at least talk about this to help help others and I know Lisa would want me to do this absolutely and I listened to the show the other day and I was like it's, it's time for me to you did yeah I heard her voice again and I was like wow these guys are amazing they're carrying on this work for her and I want to be at least a little part of it to be able to do this that's why I reached out so, I'm so glad you did um, yeah so yeah so you know the before and the during was really hard. Some of the things I did right was, um, again, gathered as many people around me as I could. And that's been the most help I ever could have had. One of the things I wish I did with Lisa more about the after mm-hmm. is what I was gonna do with my life. She was my partner. We always talked about <laughs> my life. She was my best friend. Of course. Right? And I've been so adrift for the last year. You know, I've been existing, but not living, existing. Yeah. And so much of it is grieving, obviously, but so, and so much of it is just not having her to talk to anymore. It's the giant hole in, in my life. I wish we had spent more time. I just wish I had spent more time asking what I should do. <laughs> You know, what her opinion was, because I respected her so much, and we didn't. And when she died, there's just no direction that I know that she would have been good with, right? She always said to me, you have to get married right away. You're going to find somebody right away. And here's two women that I think are perfect. I know. It was, right? <laughs> it was so funny. When and I talked to these two women, so I was like, serious. we're not perfect at all. Let's go. <laughs> we just laugh. We're like, what's happening? So she was serious about that. It's not about that. It's about, I don't know, just this advice. I was talking to a friend yesterday and she said something extremely profound that I didn't even think about, really. She said, 
the first year is all about grieving. You grieve. But then it doesn't really get better because you realize that this person is not coming back, mm -hmm. that this is permanent. Yeah. Somebody said to me, the weight doesn't get any lighter. You just get stronger to carry it. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing that was a really big surprise to me was grief. I thought grief was being sad and devastated. And it was all those things, but I didn't expect the confusion and the apathy and the tiredness and the directionless. I didn't expect the ups and downs I've had. As a man, and this is a gross generalization, <laughs> I found a lot of men yeah. perhaps aren't as in touch with their feelings as they could be. And grief could really get you, obviously. Yeah. One of the things I was specific with myself about was that I wouldn't date, that I wouldn't see other women until I felt better. Mm -hmm. Dating's gonna come up and how you deal with it and how you deal with it with your kids and stuff like that. Because I've seen a lot of widowers meet somebody and rush. immediately rush. rush, right? My thing was like, I don't wanna meet somebody to have them fix me. I want to be an equal partner with what I was able to do, right? And that has, I think, elongated some of the difficult times for me, but that's okay. But one of the things I think you should think about is this after piece of finding your emotional stability again and how you're going to do that. And I see a psychiatrist every week. I talk to all of my friends. But it's been a year, and my friends are still wonderful. But after a year, they're like, yeah. Okay, let's not talk about it anymore. Now, nobody said that, obviously, but I'm kind of like, okay, I'm good. But a year is like a, you know? But it's not. It's not, right? That's what I mean. I thought I'm not going to make any decisions for a year, or any major decisions for a year, which was smart. And then the year anniversary of Lisa's death, my sister-in-law came down and uh, Lisa's cousin came down and we cleaned out her closet. I couldn't clean out her closet our closet together in the house. So Lisa's clothes were in that closet for an entire year. I couldn't look at them. I couldn't clean it out. Couldn't do it. Brutal. And that brought everything back. And then we had a ceremony where we uh, put her ashes in the creek behind our house. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. So understanding you know, how much you want to bring back into your life in terms of remembrance. Again, it's the protecting yourself versus the too much feeling. I, I lost at least another six weeks of my life just completely out from August 6th to about now. That was hard, like giving all her clothes away. But I've never talked to a man about it. <laughs> like, holy shit, that's gonna make you feel to throw all your wife's clothes away. I think the widows I've talked to have a tighter network of widows or friends, I think, that they can talk to about this stuff. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But these things have surprised the heck out of me. Yeah, and I thought I kind of knew what I was doing and was a little bit closer to my feelings because Lisa had prepared me so well. And I realized I, I'm not so much. So there's writing the obituary, writing the eulogy, going through the clothes. There's these milestones that I think if you need help or if you're about to go through those milestones, reach out to somebody. Like, I wish I'd had 
reached out to you more this yes. past year. I wish I had had... Well, you know, I, f- I have the same guilt. Well, now. you know, I, I mean, wish life... I, had reached, <laughs> I wish I had reached out to you more. Life happens, right? And life I does wish happen. I, was with, I would wish I had been more involved in the podcast or served on more on the board of share or, or something. When I just haven't been ready. I don't know if that would have been good for me or bad. I mean, you know, with Tom, when Rebecca died, he took over Cancer Couch and continued that for her. I couldn't do it. So two things were go big or stay home. And the second one was always show up. Always. Should always show up. Made sure. And that's part of the thing that, again, I, I didn't do enough of when she, when she was ill. I showed up 90% of the time. <laughs> but there was certainly 10% of the time that I didn't to protect myself, quote unquote. And I should have been 110% of the time. So I had... It would have been easier afterwards, I think. Or not. I don't know that for sure. Exactly. There is no way um, to know. There's no way to know. And you do the best you can. So, yeah. Because once your partner is diagnosed, your life is forever different. Period. Your relationship with your partner, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your kids. Everything changes. Your marriage changes. Remember you guys did the show on sex. You know, talk about sex, baby. <laughs> you no. Know, physical things change. Everything changes. It's just the most wrenching thing to go through, right? And ultimately, again, there's no blame, but there's a little bit of regret. I have a little bit of regret in terms of what I could have done better. And I really tried to do well. But there's just some things that I didn't know and I was really surprised about. And still to this day, I don't know if you knew... There was one woman where I work, she had metastatic breast cancer, she was younger, and Lisa and her had the same oncologist. I don't know if you remember that. No. Yeah, she passed about a month and a half ago, and her husband has reached out to me for advice like, what's a eulogy? How long does it need to be? Who should speak? So he's having a reception at a hotel, and I was just telling him things like, yeah, but the night before everybody's coming in, what are they going to do? He goes, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Got to should plan a big dinner or party for them. What about the morning after? Or what about after the ceremony? I have breakfast with them the next day. There's like a step-by-step guide that I think most guys are going to be clueless about. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll publish one. Make Maybe sure you, you should. Have, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, kind yeah. of done. Follow this because, you know. And it's useful for women. Of course, I, again, to, uh, not, not, I don't. I don't mean women who will be widows. I mean for us to actually have a plan, what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a broad outline, but you're not going to know it until you've been through it. That's for sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, what does the obituary look like? Again, I keep coming back to it because it was just so difficult to sit down and write. You know? Well, I mean, look, I wasn't going through what you were going through, but when I had to write something on social media, yeah. it was so hard. Yeah, so hard. The eulogy that you guys had on the show. It was beautiful. But just writing that was like, I didn't write it for a month, and then I just sat down and it came in 10 minutes. But understanding what that means and how you need to do it and again just like what the heck is happening I don't understand any of this 
do you want to wake? Do you not want to wake? Do you want to right. party? Do you oh, not want to party? It's just, where's it going to be? It's just those planning things that, again, if I had a, had a team in place and just said, please go, please do, that would have been much better. What else can I tell you? Tell me about what you've been doing this year. You continue to work. I continue to work. Is Alex still with you? Alex is still with me. He was out in Boulder. Yes, and, and in July we went to the Santa Fe Opera. And before that, we, uh, we did a little Colorado, and I wanted to see Boulder. Oh, yeah. And everything in Boulder reminded me of Lisa. It was just too difficult. It's crazy, right? Yeah, it's too difficult. And this is what they say, that... Completely unexpectedly, yeah. you get hit by this. You Boulder. Never like, I've never <laughs> been to Boulder of all places. Why does it hit so hard? Yeah. yeah. What, what is going on here? Yeah. I think it's the overall feeling of existing, not living. And I think that's the overall thing. So work. Just getting you through the day. Yeah. Like, for some people might throw themselves into their work. I just couldn't do it. I'm good at what I do and went through the motions, but I'm just not excited about it. I'm starting to do more volunteering. I'm starting to do stuff like this because I, I think what's going to give my life more purpose yes. is connection and helping people through this kind of stuff. And you know, I'm going to join some nonprofit boards, which is good, and I'm doing different types of work, and I've been traveling. Lisa and I used to laugh all the time just because we used to laugh all the time. Cause, cause well, she had an amazing sense of humor, and so she do had, you. She had to. She lived with me and so do years, you, right? and so it's it's hard for people like that not to. So, one of the blessings has been all my friends are still married, and they're like, "Oh man, the other day we wanted to go to a restaurant, and I couldn't go because my wife she made me wait twenty minutes, and I blah, 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 blah. and I look at them sometimes, and I go, I would not wish." on you what I went through but feels pretty good <laughs> to just you know live my life as to do what I want so I've spent a lot of time trying to turn the loneliness into freedom in a sense that's a good way of putting it yeah, yeah. maybe I'm kidding myself but I've been traveling a lot and I've been what? seeing a lot of friends and I've been playing music a lot which I did before but right. just certainly really getting back into that so that's been really good. So I feel healthy and good, just with a big kind of hole in my life, which is, again, to be expected. And I have no guideposts in terms of what to do afterwards because everybody's journey is so obviously unique. But certainly there's a lot of stuff before and during and just after she passed that I've, I wish I knew before, you know. How was the kids? Kids are good. Kids are good, surprisingly. I think Lisa prepared them better than I was prepared. My one son, Alex, who was on the show, who didn't talk in life, but talked the entire show, is hysterical. <laughs> he's doing really well. He was great. Yeah, he's back at school and doing well and moving forward. And our oldest son is in California right now working on the crush, the grape crush, doing a lot of stuff in the industry that he's in and flourishing. And really? Really. Lisa would be really, That's really, nice. really proud of both of them. I'm, I'm sure yeah. she would. Is, is yeah. he still with his partner? Yes, his partner has been great. One of the things I did do, which I, which really helped me, and if people could do this, uh, my friend had done this for his 60th birthday, and he invited 
his family and friends to Italy. Of course, we all know about it. Yeah, we yeah. were in Chicago. Yeah, so, yeah. Lisa was going to go, and her trial. Yes, was, the trial that ultimately was not successful. She was doing well at the time. Yeah. She said, I want to stop the trial to go on this trip. You go. And it was yeah, I know. four days. I, I know, went. I remember that. And it was over the July 4th weekend. And she passed a month later, if you can believe that's how fast it all Well, went. I know. Yeah. We were in Chicago, yeah. beginning of June. Yeah. She and I and Natalia went to the Art Institute. Right. And I was like, oh, please, get me out of here. I'm too right. tired. <laughs> and there she was, yeah. running through the museum. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, so this year, I rented a villa. Villa sounds pretentious. It was a five-bedroom, five-bathroom thing with a pool. And I did it for two weeks in Puglia. And all the people that were really wonderful to me this year, I said, I'm inviting you. If you can get there, let's be there and celebrate our love of her. Because I haven't been to church since Lisa died. I haven't felt her with me. I felt the loss of her very much. But having everybody there in one place for a week, and it was my family the first week, and it was a lot of Lisa's friends from graduate school the second week. And we had two weeks just to be. And it was the greatest gift I could have ever given myself, ever. And I thought, wow, Lisa would be really happy. I did this, you know, gathering all of our friends and be together and eat every day and just love this. And if if ever you can do that, it doesn't have to be in Italy, obviously, but if, if you're going through some grief, what really helped me was like just, hey, we're all doing this at this time. Please come, let's do this. I didn't realize I had 20 friends. Within two minutes, the houses were full. People just wanted to give back and be there and be with her and be with each other. And we all felt her there. And that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's been the thing that has given me the strength to now do stuff like this. It's been great. So if you can really do that, gather your friends around, obviously, and remember people that you've lost, do it in a way that is celebratory. That's a wonderful thing. It was great for me. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I I think I want to live in Italy all year now, though. Speaking of living, right before Lisa died, she had this idea of downsizing Mm -hmm. and finding a perfect house on the beach for you guys. And at the end, you did, right? How do you like it? It didn't pan out to be exactly what she wanted, or there's just too much grief in that house. There's both, but the joy and the love is what I feel. Because my neighbors are amazing people. I was with them all last night. Somebody had a lobster bake. Oh, wow. So there was 20 of us at the lobster bake on the beach. And Lisa, of course, met everybody on the street before I got to get to know them. Oh, before she moved in. Yeah. All of them were her best friends yeah, by then. I keep saying to everybody, well, you got the worst parts. You're just love with me. I'm really sorry. And they have been so welcoming and so nice and so wonderful that I feel her love for me every day and these people. 
because she wanted she wanted me to have neighbors and to have people to take care of me or take care of me quote unquote and just be nice and and it's been that times ten for that I'm super lucky and we moved when she was healthy you raise a really good point because we talked about what what's my life going to be like when she was gone and Lisa she knew what I was going to need like lots of people around and lots of neighbors and lots of like connection and lots of water and uh, that worked out so well that again there's there's grief there but like she's just around me all the time like the good things about her like I know she loved me I know she still loves me I know which is an amazing thing to have right oh of course yeah how many of us can say that yeah that's amazing and um, she said as we were thinking about moving when before we moved she had heard a show where a widow said The best thing my husband did for me before he died was made sure we sold our house. Everything was downsized. Mm-hmm. Everything was good. We were in a little condo. I was all settled. And then he passed. And I wasn't in the same place. If she would have died, it would have been just been that, in that house rattling around and having to move. Yeah. It would have been brutal. Yeah. This goes back to my point earlier about... Figuring out what you're going to do next. Think about your living situation, right? right? And she did. <laughs> like, let's get an apartment for a oh, while. She's like, no, we're getting a house. We're going to be here. You're going to be in a... I have to tell you, one of the uh, brightest memories of, um, of Lisa for me was the day you guys moved to the new house. And she was having a biopsy. Yeah. So I was her biopsy body. body. Yeah. And so I checked her out. And said, we're going to Chicago the next day. Yeah. I need to get my hair done. Yeah. She and I went to get her hair done. Yep, I remember that. And through that whole hair done process of about three hours, just got her biopsy. Three hours of hair. She was uh, directing your uh, movements. movements. Yes. It was hilarious. She was, like she was <laughs> amazing. Yeah. She, had this, she had these <laughs> troops. Yeah. You asked earlier whether she knew... We were only in the house about a month and a half before she passed. Yeah. That timing worked really well for me, and I think she knew that, you know, it's not a place filled with grief. It's not a place filled with memories. It's a place that I knew that she wanted for me. Yeah. And that's why it's a place filled with love. We just got lucky, and it's got east and west facing, and she said to me, you know, if I only have a year to live, if I can see a sunrise every morning and a sunset every evening... I'm going to be happy. That's a very good point, is thinking about your living situation afterwards, yeah, because she really did for me. We did for each other, and we wanted to downsize anyways, but the fact that we were able to do it at that time because she was still feeling okay, and then she started not feeling okay. Yeah. Right as that was done, I mean, maybe she was working towards that, okay, that's taken care of. Maybe. That was the big check mark. Maybe. And then, again, you don't know. So, yeah, that's worked out really well. And like I say, the neighbors have been super wonderful. And they've all shared their stories about grief and loss and tough times. And have wrapped their arms around me, and it's been, it's been delightful. So in a way, you have your support group. Totally, yeah. I, I feel Lisa in them all the time. I'm surprised they haven't started introducing you to eligible women yet. Oh, they have. Oh, they have. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's par for the course. It has to be. Yeah, it's par for the it's course. It's one of the things about being a widower. There are probably quite a few eligible women. There are. There are. I've been on a bunch of dates, but nothing's ever stuck. 
the thing is, it's very hard to replace that. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I've talked to the kids about dating and stuff like that, which again is important. And I have some funny dating stories, and we laugh about. <laughs> but I've recently stopped, kind of thing. Maybe I'll start up again. I don't know, but I was, it was just not worth it for me right now. I wanted to concentrate on more of the stuff that I wanted to do. Okay, well, yeah. yeah. When you're ready, you will. Yeah. As you just heard, along the path of breathing, Tony found many practical and proactive steps he takes to avoid trauma and to deal with his needs on a daily basis. With therapy and friends, he's learning to respond to what his body, mind, and spirit are telling him. Nancy Rowlands, a friend and a producer at the Our NBC Live podcast, listened to Tony's interview and wrote, Truly remarkable. So generous of him to share all this from invaluable practical advice for not only caregivers, but us with NBC to his candid reflection on his first year as a widower. Tony's generosity and willingness to help others who are going or will undoubtedly be going through the same experience have not ended with this interview. In our post-interview conversations, he repeatedly mentioned that he would be open to helping anyone dealing with similar losses. And he means it. He's also thinking about starting a spousal support group. As he has learned, bereavement groups focus on widows or older widowers. He sees the need for a group that would address the emotional needs of younger widowers and younger people. Cher is enthusiastic and on board, but it will take some time, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening. I hope You got a lot out of this episode. In the notes, we have included Lisa's poem, Abide With Me. This episode was produced by me, Victoria Goldberg. I want to thank our amazing podcast team for assisting me with it. I would not have been able to finish it without the help of Nancy Roylands, Miranda Gonzalez, Kate Fitzer, Linda Weatherby, and Paula Jane. Original music, and sound design by associate producer Connor Kinsley. Miranda Gonzalez and Kate Fitz always keep us on track. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Sherry Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of our NBC Live wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter written by the team of the wonderful writers, Nancy Roylands, Rod Bricci, and Connie Kinsley. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at ourmbclife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Our NBC Life.